Hello, I'm Sybil Roscoe and welcome to the latest Floodlit Dreams podcast. In this edition to mark World Book Day, we're going to talk about grief and legacy and hope. With me is Ian Ridley, writer, journalist and of course founder of Floodlit Dreams. Ian's wife, Vicky Orweiss, died of cancer in February 2019 and Vicky was a trailblazing football and athletics writer. With us too is Lauren Clark, whose husband, Bob Willis, died from prostate cancer in December 2019. Bob, of course, was one of our great sporting heroes, famous for his bowling exploits against the Australians at Headingley in 1981. His eight wickets for 43 runs are part of cricketing folklore. And um, Ian, I thought I'd come to you first and say, what do you remember of Bob's exploits back in 1981? Well, probably not as much as Lauren, but I do remember I just started on The Guardian. Um, the year before and uh, we were all supposed to be working but we had the TV on all the time and just sort of watched every ball that, that was delivered and the whole place stopped and and of course we, it all went manic afterwards um, when we were trying to order as much copy as we could. Um, we didn't have as much space in those days, newspapers didn't cover it the same way and I remember reading in Bob's book over the weekend, which we'll talk about later, his account of it, that it was only when he got to Edgebuston later that night, having heard it on the Radio 4 News, that it was such a big deal at the time. Um, but it was a huge deal in our newspaper office. I certainly remember that. And Laura, do you actually remember anything of that in 81? Or were you well, a bit too young? I definitely, I definitely remember watching it. I was more um, obsessed with Ian Botham at the time. But um, yes, embarrassingly, I was only 13, but very impressionable, obviously. And, um, you know, I've, I've had a big love of cricket ever since. And, um, you know, his, his performance um, won us the ashes that year because if he hadn't taken the 8 for 43, for whatever beef he set it up in the first place, but... If he hadn't done that, they would have been two nil down with two to play. So they could have only got a draw maximum. And um, so, yeah, I'm very proud of him. Well, I said to start with that we're going to chat about grief, legacy and hope. So first of all, I just wanted to say to both of you, how are you? Ian, how are you? Well, I always try and look at it. How was I a year ago? And uh, I certainly feel a lot better than I did um, two years certainly uh, a year ago certainly two years ago it's it's two years and two weeks since we lost Vicky um, and obviously Sybil you knew her very well as well so it was a loss to you too um, I'm I'm better I can't deny I'm better I still get wobbles I still have moments when it just doesn't feel real it feels weird just being around the house on my own um, and that, that she's gone at the age of 56 but um, I have a glimmer of acceptance now. Well, more than a glimmer, if I'm honest. I have, you know, acceptance that there is a life, that there is um, stuff still to do, still, still to, places still to see, things still to be done. So, um, yeah, that's a long answer to a short question. <laughs> and what about you, Lauren? How are you? Well, I mean, it gives me hope to hear Ian say that he has hope for the future because I don't see a future at the moment. Um, it's 15 months tomorrow that Bob died. Um, you know, he had a three year, eight month illness, uh, but it was still incredibly sudden at the end. And, um, um, you know, so we had three months or so of him dying and then 
pretty much lockdown has been ever since and um, it's been incredibly difficult and I don't think I'm at the accepting stage I don't even really believe that it's happened and um, you know I just think about him all the time and um, everything I do is to do with him so um, I don't know if that's helping me or hindering me really but that's sort of the way to get through it day by day have extremely low expectations of life now and um, I'm very I don't regret I, I don't have regrets of the past but I have regrets of a future that I could have still had that I that I now don't have. I think um, Lauren that's that's where the anger comes in isn't it you feel robbed robbed of somebody you loved and robbed of the future you would have had with them. Absolutely I mean I, I do get angry about things to do with doctors or or you know having lost my future that I as I wanted it to be. Um, it wouldn't have been, I was, you know, several years younger than Bob. I, I knew that probably one day I would be without him, but I didn't expect him to die at 70. He was so fit and just was slaughtered by prostate cancer, basically, the, the worst version that he could have got. So, you know, I'm angry about that. He could have got a much less severe version of prostate cancer and still had, you know, 10, 15 years, but no, he had to get that one and um, but, but you know the one thing I can say is I'm not angry with him at all I can't think of a single thing about him that would make me angry. And Ian I know you've been very open about your grief and we'll talk about your book as well that you've written uh, about the grief that you've gone through. Do you think as well sometimes it's difficult to go through this experience because we are not always ready to talk about death it's not always easy to talk about it or to raise the subject I mean personally I've always thought that death should be part of life mm. in a strange kind of way mm. do you think sometimes the experience is hard because we we tuck it away sometimes I mean I do nobody really wants to to talk about it do they I mean it's it's it is a heck of a subject. And I remember, um, firstly, I identify with a lot of what Lauren has just said. I mean, particularly in my first, I would say it took at least 18 months before I saw any kind of stuff out of the darkness, even in what seemed like good days, good times when you could, in a, in a summer or whatever, when we were allowed out, I had a summer of going to cricket before, when we were allowed out before the pandemic struck. Even then I could feel, really dark in the middle of a cricket crowd you know so I kind of identify with all that um, and uh, what I would say even Vicky didn't want to talk about death even though she had an acceptance of it towards the end it was amazing really I, I can remember being with her in the Royal Marsden and we had all these people around us nurses and so on and palliative care people and I got quite frustrated with Vicky because she just didn't want to talk about any of this stuff. You know, they would say, well, shall we deliver um, a new bed to the house that, so you don't have to go upstairs and it has a recliner on it and everything. She said, oh, I don't need that. I don't want to talk about that, you know. So, but by the last week or two, Vicky had this piece about her. There's no doubt about it, where she kind of had accepted it. It's just she didn't want to talk about it. She never wanted to know what her prognosis was from the, the, the oncologists. And towards the end, after they told her there was no more treatment, I had to go and 
privately and see one of the doctors, you know, when Vicky wasn't around and say, look, what are we dealing with here? How long? And all that kind of thing. She didn't want to know any of that. So I think one of the things as well over the last year is a lot more people are going to be grieving, obviously, because of the death toll in the pandemic. Now, if you think 120,000 people, uh, all of those will at least have 10 people. So we're talking, you know, millions of people that are going to be bereaved and feeling it. So I think there is going to be a new conversation and there will be an explosion in grief books as well. And I think, Lauren, that's why it's important, I think, to sit here and chat like we're doing now, because I know part of the legacy, I suppose, of you living with Bob and losing your husband is that you are in a unique position that you're able to share. You're able to share what's going on and what's happening. And that might help people, might help somebody else, mightn't it? Well, yeah, I'm really fascinated about grief now. I mean, it's obviously the number one subject on my mind. And um, I'm a completely different person to before Bob died. And I was as useless as everybody else was. I, I told Ian when I spoke to him earlier that um, I, I met him at um, a, a funeral. I think it might be slightly before Vicky's funeral, Clive White. He died, I think, on the same day as Vicky. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't seen Ian for 20 odd years. And Bob was still alive. He was with me at the funeral. And um, I saw you, Ian, and I said, I thought, oh, please don't come up to me because then I'm going to have to say something. And you came straight up to me and I did say something and I hope that I handled it okay, but I was stressed out about it. And so I can understand how people do feel. And, um, and now I have a completely different attitude to it that, you know, people just don't understand at all. And, um, you know, we, we talk about birth and you have lessons on birth at school and things like that. And we all know that everybody's going to die and everybody's going to suffer grief. And why don't we talk about it? And that will be part of my um, passion in the future, I think. I mean, at the moment, I've, you know, I'm working on prostate cancer specifically so as not to confuse the message. But I think after that, I'm going to move to, um, to grief as well, because that's all part of Bob, Bob's legacy. I'm in grief because he died. Mm. I remember once working on a series at the BBC and it was entitled How to Have a Good Death. And I have to say, when I was a bit younger, I was thinking, what, what on earth are we doing this for? But really, looking back, it was such a great idea because it covered all aspects of grief. And like you say, it's not a conversation you ever really have to have until it happens to you and your family. Lauren? Yeah, I mean, um, there's some podcasts about palliative care and death and explaining what's going to happen to you. And, um, you know, terrifying, obviously, for me included. But, um, you know, when you're in that situation and a doctor's telling you, and then this will happen and you'll be really, really calm and, um, you know, not in any pain and et cetera, et cetera. I think, I think that, that that does need to be, be more open. Um, for Bob, unfortunately, we didn't really have the time to discuss that. His demise was pretty quick and we didn't know well, we probably did know that he was dying, but we didn't ask. And and then they they sort of give you this um, morphine box in the side saying that it's to just to sort of keep him from getting agitated. But really, they were sort of killing him and uh, in, a, in, a, you know, in a nice way, I suppose. But I, I feel very angry that um, he just went to sleep and we didn't have that chart, that final chance to speak. 
Um, so I, I think that even, you know, even though Bob's death was pretty nice, if, if you can say that, um, I would have liked to maybe been a bit more aware of quite what was happening. And is Ian, is that your experience or? Yeah, I mean, I always used to think, how can anyone have a good death? How can a good death be such a thing? How can you use the word good with death? And then I have to say, Vicky did pass peacefully. There are people that say you shouldn't use the word pass because it's a euphemism. She died and I know she did. But there is a um, there is a sense that she did pass. She slipped away. And I was pleased in that sense, relieved more than pleased, I guess, that in the end, because one of the three questions I asked, I asked, how long does she have? Um, uh, will she be in any pain? And, um, you know, how will she die? And they told me that, you know, if we manage it properly, she won't die in any pain. And they gave me a rough time scale. And that was kind of what happened. She, we managed the pain. She wasn't in any pain. And she slipped. And, and over the last week, that was a comfort because I was dreading it, really. I'd seen my father die and my father died very painfully. And I, and I was, that really scarred me at that time. And I saw an uncle die and there was a thing called a death rattle. I don't know if you've ever heard it, but somebody. Bob had that the night before he died because I was in, in the room, yeah. How long for, Lauren? All night, I think. I didn't know what it was at the time, but I could I could do an example of it if you wanted. It's it's yeah. it's torturous, yeah. It's it's very very scary and very distressing. And I saw my uncle, and I was worried that that would happen to Vicky, and and thankfully, I didn't get any of that. So, in that sense, it it was a good death. If a good death at fifty six can be said to be a thing. Um. While we're talking, it occurs to me because I'm a sports fan and Vicky was my friend. Um, I know a lot about Bob and I know a lot about Vicky, but some of our listeners might not know who we're talking about. And so I think it might be a good idea now, maybe Lauren, can you tell us about your Bob? Maybe not so much the Bob that we know from cricket and commentary on cricket, but what about your Bob? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me that difficult question. <laughs> but as you t as you told me to say in advance, my Bob was my my Bob, my husband. He was um, he was just gorgeous to me and um, funny, and we spent an awful lot of time together. He was quite needy and um, easily bored if I wasn't there, and um, you know he was just a normal lovely husband who went off and did a show and turned into a different persona couple of nights a week and um yeah I just miss him yes just to explain to somebody listening who might not know Bob on his commentary could be pretty grumpy and um quite acerbic I suppose you could say but at home was he a big softy then a massive softy <laughs> yes <laughs> oh yeah he yeah we just um Yes, he always wanted, I mean, this is embarrassing, but, you know, he always wanted to lie on the sofa next to me. And it's just, um, he was just incredibly loving and um, the complete opposite of what of his persona on, on the TV. Uh, but th that was all part of his sense of humour, I think. I mean, we laughed a lot. We liked laughing at the same things. We were quite rude, cheeky. Um, yeah, just so lucky to have met someone that I was... Um, so similar to which sort of always amazed me really considering he was 19 years older than me but um 
I don't know, we, we, we really clicked. And what about Vicky, Ian? What can you tell people oh. who didn't know Vicky about Vicky? I, I, I was starting to go a bit when Lauren was talking then because... <laughs> what I was talking about there. <laughs> I was just so... I, you see, I've got Bob's book and I read Bob's book that, that has come out since Bob passed. He never got round to doing an autobiography, but it's a biography, part one. And part two, it's called Bob Willis, A Critter and a Gentleman. That kind of sums up the two parts of the book. There's various, all sorts of stuff about, um, you know, from tributes to him and all the rest of it. Uh, and, and I read that book over the, the weekend and there was one thing missing from it for me. And that was Lauren's version of Bob. And I have to be honest, I would have liked to have read that in the book. Now, I don't know if Lauren felt ready to write that, but one day I hope Lauren will write about Bob because I think it would be lovely because what I just heard was lovely. Um, my relationship with Vicky was not entirely smooth, uh, as smooth as Lauren's by the sounds of it, but Vicky was my soulmate. There's no doubt about that. And, I, and it's not a word I like. She could be arsy, perverse, <laughs> strong, independent, argumentative. Um, and she never wanted me to lie about her. She, she knew she was that. She knew she was that. And she kind of reveled in it. And that was part of the attraction for me because she was so sparky and fun and she was funny, clever, bright um, and uh, very warm, loving, generous as well. And, you know, she was a rounded person. That was her. That's who she was. And of course, a trailblazing journalist. She was one of the first women to write about football on a tabloid newspaper. She cut her own furrow with all those macho men in the press box. You know, that wasn't an easy route, was it? And I was just thinking, you two talking about Bob and Vicky, the Bob and Vicky you both knew. Well, how is it when you have to share the love and the loss with a lot of other people? Because I know when Bob died, there was a great outpouring of grief. You know, many of my friends who I worked with in cricket were really deeply, deeply upset. And of course, Ian, because we're friends, I know how, you know, when Vicky died, the, the response was just tremendous, wasn't it? Tremendous, the way that people just really admired her as a woman and as a professional woman. So, Laura, what's it been like for you having to share all that love and loss? Well, I'm, I, I, it's been lovely. I mean, he wouldn't have believed how upset people were about his death. We'd kept it pretty quiet. His, his, the people at Sky knew and his family and friends knew, but obviously it hadn't been made public. And I think it was a massive shock because he died in December 2019. He'd worked all the way through the ashes till sort of the end of mid, mid to end September. And even then, I mean, he wasn't terribly ill in my mind, it, it, all, it all went slightly downhill after that. But um, so, so that sort of enhanced the shock for everybody. I, I remember when we, um, so he died on um, the 4th of December at about 2.30 and I, I'd already warned Sky that he wasn't gonna be coming back to work. And, um, and so I then told um, the, the cricket, uh, head of cricket, 
but he died. I don't know if, even if I did that. But anyway, um, we, we wanted Sky to announce it because, um, well, it needed to be announced some way. And, you know, Bob had worked for them for 25 to 30 years. And um, so we came back to the flat. There was probably 10 or 12 of us. And um, literally 90 seconds after we'd said, OK, do it, it was just everywhere. And um, I don't know whether you remember, but Vicky Gomersall, who was the um, who was on the Sky Sports News with Jim White that that evening um, burst into tears as she was reading it. And, uh, and then obviously the next day there was, it was all over the papers, front and back pages. And, you know, he, he just wouldn't have believed it. Um, so he what wasn't here, wasn't he? Why do you think he wouldn't have believed it? Oh, he was, didn't have any ego, didn't consider himself special or famous. I mean, you know, if, you, if, if, you, if I said to him, oh, could you ask um, somebody at Sky Sorry, somebody at Lords, for example, you know, could we buy two tickets for a test match? And it's like Bob Willis asking, and we're prepared to pay. He didn't even want to do that, so he 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 wasn't pushy. He didn't push himself. So now I'm pushing him. Now he's dead. I don't know if he'll <laughs> like that or not. Um, but yeah, and I don't know. Maybe maybe you become more more famous when you are dead. I don't know really. But um, it it was astonishing and lovely and helpful. I would say. And did you hear from lots of other cricketers and lots of cricket fans? Yeah, I mean, um, I got flowers from Jimmy Anderson. Um, yeah, I got an awful lot of cards. And obviously, I remember everybody who sent a card and what they said. And um, yeah, I mean, I was spoiled in that way. And, and, and they're really helpful as well. And um, I mean, you know, his, his friends in, in the world of cricket are still there for him now and um you know we'll probably maybe talk later about this um, fund that we're setting up in his name and um we just can't you know everybody says yes whenever you ask them to help so it's amazing and what about sharing your loss in with everybody i must admit at the time i used to think to myself vicky would find this hilarious <laughs> she would find it hilarious that so many people were talking about her yeah. What was hilarious, I remember looking back and I think she would have loved was we had about 20 of the sports staff, the reporters from The Sun at her funeral, and we put them in the choir stalls. <laughs> yeah. and that was deliberate. Um, but it, something Lauren said there, which which really hit home with me was about, you know, Bob was such a reluctant kind of hero in many ways, um, but she feels it now that she wants to kind of make up for that in a way and big him up on his behalf. And I feel that with Vicky. I very much felt that I'm, I'm fierce about Vicky's legacy. As you say, she was the first woman to be hired on the staff of a, a British tabloid as a football writer. In the mid nineties, it was thought they couldn't deal with the rough and tumble of it. Um, and in fact, one, somebody on the sports desk said to another one, a football writer said to another one, they're not there anymore. Um, we'll have her out of here in, a, in tears in a week. You know, that's how it was at that time. Um, I was stunned when Vicky, when Vicky died, she asked me a week before she died, look, when it happens, she, she sent me, this is so Vicky, she sent me two pages of what she wanted for her funeral. Um, and then she, she said, a couple of days before she died, she said, just put something on Facebook and Twitter because you'll probably get a lot of phone calls and you won't want to ask answer them 
So she died at five and I rang her family. It took me a couple of hours to get my head together and I started ringing her family and close friends. And then I put something on Twitter at nine, I think it was. And um, this, the response was just astonishing, you know, from athletes and, you know, football people, um, well-known names, Jess Ennis and Paula Radcliffe and everybody was just, you know, there were 20,000 likes and all that kind of thing. And I was just astonished thinking, where has this come from? We're just Ian and Vicky, we're just jobbing journalists really. And then when her funeral, you were at her funeral, Sybil, we had 500 people there and it was just crazy really. But I look back very fondly on that day now. And ever since then, do you know, it took me a while to share Vicky. I have to say, I wasn't aware of other people grieving. I was so lost in my own grief that it didn't really occur to me that her friends would be as upset because I was so upset. How can they be as upset? You know, they can brush it off. I can't. So it took me until we did a dinner for her at Lord's Cricket Ground. And I suddenly realized, my God, other people have grieved and, and been in pain about this as well. But I mean, like Lauren, you know, I want to keep Vicky's legacy alive. We set up a scholarship in her name and a young woman reporter was hired at the Sun. We we put on the dinner, raised 100,000 for the Marsden. Um, her, her school, she'd have loved this. Her school named their library after her. You know, so I kind of have felt it a real duty. I think there will come a time when I think, if I'm honest, I'm getting there, you know, enough now, enough. It, it's time, but I'm, I'm, I'm almost there. I'm almost there. Did you appreciate as well, Lauren, just how much other people were grieving? Were you able to, are you still, are you able to appreciate that now, I suppose? Um... That's a really good question because I mean I think what Ian was saying before uh, just then was people do grieve. I think I'd quite like different words for grief because I think Ian and I have got secondary grief as well, which is sort of like doubly as bad because we are grieving the future and the life we had. That doesn't the people who didn't live with Vicky or Bob aren't affected like that in the same way, aren't, are they? I mean, I know Bob's brother is grieving and very sad and he, with me, is throwing himself into Bob's legacy, but it isn't the same for him. He's got his lovely wife cooking for him every night and his daughter living at home at the moment during COVID. And I am having to cook for myself and I'm having to make every decision myself. I haven't got my protective arm around my shoulder from my husband and um, it's it's really hard. So I know, I know people miss him. I know his friends miss him, but they, you know, inevitably they're going to move on, still be there supporting and be there on the important memorable dates and things like that. But, you know, it isn't the same for them as it is for us. Yes, you make a, an interesting point there about, you know, the word grief. Are you grieving? How grief stricken you are? But, Ian, it's so much more complicated than that, isn't it? Well, I mean, I found... One of the reasons I wrote the book, The Breath of Sadness, was because I just didn't understand what was going on with me. And because I've been a writer my whole life, that was the only way I knew. I mean, people can't see. I can see Lauren is sitting in front of some artwork she did of Bob, and it's absolutely beautiful. And that is Lauren's kind of way of, of uh, 
you know, utilizing her skills to process what's going on with her in some way. She can talk about that for herself. I don't need to, but mine was writing. So I wrote the book for three reasons. One, to honor Vicky. Two, to process what was going on with me. And three, that some of it might resonate with other people. Um, and they thought, well, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. That said, I don't know two people that grieve the same way. No, I think you're right there. And Lauren, you and I spoke about this when we had a bit of a chat before we, we met to do the podcast. I admitted that I suffered grief as a young person. I lost someone very close to me and I didn't really deal with it at the time. And I was saying to you, wasn't I, Lauren? Yeah, 12 years on. Do accept it and keep feeling that grief because it's very important to do that too. But what I found amazing by talking to you at that that moment, and I only only talked to you for like a minute or something, and you the way you spoke to me about Bob, I just knew you were in the club, and I'll call it the club. This <laughs> yes. club. But if you haven't experienced it, you can't be in it. And I don't feel sorry for those people that they're not in it because we don't want to be in it, but we're different to them now, aren't we? And yeah, and I think you you make a good point there because I think often um, I lost my boyfriend. He was killed in a road accident when I was 23 and he was 25. So I know exactly what you mean. And throughout my life, I sort of have recognized people who are mm -hmm. in that club. I could tell with you straight away. I don't know why, but I just could, because I asked you straight away, didn't I? Yeah. And yeah. I didn't feel awkward about asking you that. Yes, and I think that's another thing. That's perhaps um, something that um, grief gives you a kind of emotional freedom Mm -hmm. Ian, I don't know whether if you feel this, it does give you an emotional freedom to be able to talk more deeply to people sometimes about stuff. Well, I do think, if I'm honest, I tend to overshare. Um, <laughs> yeah. He's saying that because I have told him that. <laughs> it's part of who I am, I think, sometimes. But then I've had a lifetime of having to, really, um, for, for various reasons, you know. Um, but yeah it's the only way i know is to is to be honest about it because it's the only way i can i can cope i i've been very much aware that probably on facebook and twitter over the last couple of years i've been a bit of a bore at times and i hate be, being seen as a grief bore but it's been the only way i can deal with it and a lot of people have said they get stuff from when i when i do share so but i do need to cut back i know that um i have to say I was, I was talking to a man just before Christmas who'd lost his wife. He was 90 years old. They'd met when they were 15. So they'd been, to, she died last year. So they'd been together for, uh, uh, you 75, that 75, 75 years. years nearly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they were married when they were 18. Since she died, he has not been able to have her picture in his apartment. He has not been to her grave either. That is how he deals with it. Mm. Now, I go to Vicky's grave at least once, if not twice a week. In the early days, I was going every day. Um, and I have, there is no place in this house that doesn't have a picture of Vicky more than six feet away. But I think you're making a good point there. And Lauren, you might be able to speak about this. You do deal with it in your own way, don't you? You have well, to find yeah. your own route. Exactly. You hear of people who um, who sort of move house within a year because they can't bear it. Whereas I, I, I think I'm like in exact 
uh, I just, I like being in the, in the flat. The flat is all about, you know, Bob's still here in this flat as far as I'm concerned. I haven't really changed anything and um, his clothes are all here and I, you know, I can't, I'm, I'm not ready to deal with any of that stuff. I've given some of his clothes away to his brother who wears them and then I say, that's a nice top, that's a nice jacket. <laughs> Um, but, it, you know, I quite like seeing him wearing those clothes, but I, I don't want to just give them away to nobody. So I, I, they're all still there. Um, yeah, I don't know how long I'm going to feel like that, but it's comforting to come home, even though you are opening the front door and no one's there. It's it's the most comforting place that I can be at the moment, I think. And I know Ian had big problems with trying to go away for a few days and needing to return early. Yeah. I used to find the hardest, the hardest and the cruelest for me was you would wake up in the morning and just for a split second, just for that split second when you woke up, you didn't know and everything was fine. And then you have that, oh no. Mm -hmm. That for me was the worst time, waking up. I found one of the, the worst times is when I have a really nice dream about Vicky. <laughs> And it's very real. And, you know, we're on holiday somewhere or whatever and the sun's shining and I have this great dream. And then I wake up and I think, oh, sod it. And I try to get back to sleep to get back to the dream and I can't. That's that's that really is awful. Right? Yeah, I think I've been quite I mean, I've, I've got insomnia, so I don't get many dreams. But um, I think that maybe I've been lucky. I haven't really dreamt about him very much. I don't think that's probably very helpful, is it? Probably pretty depressing. You will. You will. You definitely will. Yeah, okay. You definitely will, Lauren. I certainly didn't have a dream to Vicky for in oh for at least six, nine months. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I remember that. I think it'd be a good point now to talk about something that we've already mentioned, and that's legacy. Mm. You know, you lose someone you love, you have all this grief and love. What do you do with it? What do you do with it? Maybe, Ian, you could perhaps start um, talking about what you've done so far. Yeah. Um, you mentioned some of the things. You've written your book. And yeah. you, you very definitely wanted Vicky to still be part of life. Yeah. Well, I was also amazed how she'd inspired young women. Um, the week before she died, she asked to see the son's um, people from from the sun and the editor came to see her here at the house and she said to him look there just aren't enough women in fleet street it's time she could she was not speaking very well at this point she just kept saying it's time it's time and he said yes we'll do something about it and her sports editor agreed that they would set up a scholarship and there is a, a young woman who won that i was on the panel to decide who won that um, Isabel Barker, and she's very sparky and very talented, and Vicky would have liked her. So that was a good thing that, that came out of it. The school library was wonderful. Um, Vicky loved our local church, so I kind of donated a new door in, in her memory, that kind of thing I did. Um, the dinner we, we did for the Royal Marsden, there've been, it's just vital for me that her name is, is kind of around the place. I, I remember the village here, they wanted somebody to, to um, if they would spend some money to buy new plants outside the cricket pavilion. And I said, I'll do that, I'll do that. But I want a little plaque for Vicky there, <laughs> you know. I just want her name out there, you know, that kind of thing. 
And I did, a, I organized a book prize. I, I'm very big on trying to keep Vicky. Vicky always used to say, there's a special place in hell for women that don't help other women. <laughs> yeah. And uh, she was a founder of Women in Football um, and a board member. So I've, I've linked with Women in Football and we're doing a football anthology later this year through Floodlit Dreams. We also did a Vicky Orweiss book prize, which was won by a very good book called Raise the Warrior. So stuff like that. I'm trying to encourage women writers and just trying to encourage women really in, in, in journalism. So and that's Lauren, important to me, that stuff. And Lauren, you obviously have got plans for remembering Bob. Yeah, I mean, I'd probably about the day he died, I, my ambition was to not let him die. So I have to keep his name alive. And um, I think I've done quite a good job so far. We've um, we've done a book that got onto the Sunday Times bestseller list. And um, I've done quite a lot of work with Prostate Cancer UK. So I've made videos that have been on Sky, which means they have to talk about him when they might not otherwise have done. Um, but yeah, the big thing at the moment is we're setting up a, um, something called the Bob Willis Fund. And um, it's uh, to raise awareness and money for the early diagnosis of prostate cancer, hopefully discovering a better test than the PSA test that for Bob was hopeless. And his, his, uh, his cancer that was extremely aggressive and serious took sort of four to five months to diagnose is, is poor. Um, so, so that's what we're doing. We're hoping to have a, a day at uh, Edgebaston in June um, to, a blue for Bob Day, which isn't an original idea, but it might be quite original because it's probably going to be have to have to be very media dr driven and not a lot of crowds in the stadium and stuff. But we've got great friends in Sky and the BBC and um, an Edge Baston, extremely supportive, and the ECB. So um, hopefully that will go as well as it can. We've got um, I want to have a, a so smaller events and things like I want to have a. Um, you know the Barnes Cinema that you you, you would have known Sybil. Uh, they might not have been there when you lived in Barnes, but um, he Bob. We went to the cinema about three times a week, and Bob was a founder member. And um, we're going to have a a showing of the film that was made ten years ago called From the Ashes. And um, Ian Botham's agreed to come along, and um, so we get a few, hopefully, a few Ashes heroes to that. Hopefully in September and a dinner and things like that. And I know he's. We've got plans to put some of his ashes in um, at the club where he first learnt cricket in Stoke Dabernon, and they said that they'd. This made me the mo the, the most emotional. That they'd say they'd re uh, rename the name the pavilion after him. So um, that's gorgeous, and I'm getting a bench near Barnes Pond. So I'm spoiling him. <laughs> <laughs> I got yeah, a so bench I, too. I can't, yeah. You can't not. You can't not have a bench. <laughs> Yeah, I love a bench and I managed to get it exactly where I wanted it to be. So I just keep, I feel that he keeps giving me things and I have to be grateful. Can I just say, Lauren, I wish you really well with the, with this establishing of a test, uh, you know, a better test than the PSA. Oh Yeah, I mean, it is extremely important. Maybe not in your case, um, but... We should, um, we should just explain to people listening in case people don't know that, Ian, you yourself have yeah. cancer, I... don't you? So, you know, and my father died of prostate yeah. cancer. So, Lauren, yeah. I think, you know, that is such a great thing to be, to be pressing for. Because, again, Ian, men don't always talk about... Well, 
it's a it's a difficult one for men. I I was very fortunate in, in that um, I was diagnosed early, and I you know I wish Bob had been diagnosed earlier and and had had more time. I was diagnosed in two thousand and nine. Now I knew I was ripe for it because my father had it. He had four brothers, two of whom had it as well. So it kind of ran in my family. Um, so I was regularly tested from the age of 50 and I was diagnosed at um, 55. Mm -hmm. So the, the I, annoying thing for, for, for Bob is that he was regularly tested, but the test was yeah, low, but yeah. it wasn't telling, telling us what was going on. So that's the problem. He was unlucky. I don't think that that's the same for most men, but he was unlucky. I mean, I, I think that there's an argument for Ian. I know that you um, you decided to have radiotherapy rather than the prostate removed. And that's a decision yeah. you had to make at the time. And now you might have wished that you'd had the prostate removed. A test to tell you if what which would be the better option at that stage would be amazing as well, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And and, uh, you know, it is difficult for men to, to persuade men to go and do this. Um, but it's I mean, it's worth it, even with the deficiencies of the PSA test. It's certainly it's worth it to catch it as early as you can. If a better one emerges, then then so much the better. And, you know, I, I would I would urge people to, to get tested there. Is, it, it is in Bob's case, it was an aggressive form. Mm -hmm. By and large, prostate cancer is quite a slow growing cancer if you get it quickly enough. And if we can establish a test that nips it in the bud, there is a there is a big chance of a cure. I mean, my problem was that it spread later. It became a secondary, but there is a, a good chance of a cure of getting rid of it if you get it early. Yeah, definitely. I'll certainly look forward as well to seeing Blue for Bob Day at the Edgebaston test. I think that's a I think brilliant, brilliant idea. I'm sure you're on top of this, Lauren, but you've got to play Tangled Up in Blue, haven't you? <laughs> yes. That's a good one because I really would like um, them to the players to come out to a Bob Dylan song. And I I hadn't thought of that. That's awesome. I mean, I was thinking... Quick, of, write it down. Write it yeah. down there. Because just to explain again to everyone, Bob was a massive Bob Dylan fan, wasn't that he? That is the song. I was thinking of, you know, it needs to be a song that people have heard of. I mean, there are loads of fantastic Bob Dylan songs that they are probably known by the general public. But so I was thinking of, you know, like a Rolling Stone or something like that. But tangled up in blue. It's got to be done. We'll look forward to that. Um, I want to finish by talking about your hopes because I said we started by talking about grief and legacy and I want to talk about hope too because you're two great people and um, you know I wish the best for both of you going forward I really really do so Ian what are your hopes for your own future your own future oh it's a tough one really um, I'm fortunate I have um, two children, you know, my son and my daughter, and uh, my daughter comes back from Singapore this year, so I'm looking forward to her coming back. And I, you know, you can't live through your children, but um, I'm happy, you know, if both of them are happy. I I would like to sell my crime novel. <laughs> Any agents out there, please ring. Um, but I do. I mean, I have a wider hope in that that. Um, if I'm honest, I have a secondary cancer and it is going to get me. But I've had I've lived with Vicky's for a long, long time and I kind of am getting my head round and I'm preparing for it. And I am at peace with that. I am at peace with that. So I'm OK. I've been very fortunate. I've had a very good life. I've done all the things I want to do. 
everything now, I treat it as a bonus, if I'm honest. I treat it as a bonus. I take pleasure in books. I take pleasure in sport. So, and I take pleasure in friends like you, Sybil, um, and your husband, your lovely husband, Tom. So that's where my hope lies. In, and it's in much more in the simple pleasures of life now. And I, and I genuinely know where Lauren is at because in my first 18 months, twice I thought about refusing treatment at the Royal Marsden and let the illness take its course because I could not see a future without Vicky. So I'm not saying I'm through it, but I am saying that I can see something there. And what about you, Lauren? What are your... Oh, what are your <laughs> a difficult one. The thought of sort of 20, 25 years of life without Bob is not, is not nice. Um, I hope that I can travel and see my friends in Australia and I've got a really excellent friend in America. So that's not been very helpful that I haven't been able to sort of see them this year. Um, I don't want to be defined by having to have another husband or even relationship if it's not right for me and he's going to be, Bob's going to be extremely hard to replace and how, how I, I would cope with sort of having second best and maybe how they would cope with being second best. So that's, uh, that's not easy, but I mean, you know, you got over your trauma. I, I do, you know, I do know people who have got over trauma. And so that has to be something that maybe it is possible for me to do, but it doesn't feel like that at the moment. In the end, I think the thing that gets us all through is love and friendship. Love and friendship. That is so important. I think you have to stick close to people that have been through this as well and, and you know, and use everything from them. People there's a great there's a guy called um, Simon Thomas, who you may well have heard of. Simon was a Blue Peter presenter years ago and Simon's kind of he lost his wife three years ago and Simon's like a year ahead of me and I made contact with Simon and Simon was very helpful to me and kind of dragged me through it. Simon now has a new zest for life, which is kind of encouraging. And he I had a new girlfriend as well, doesn't he? Which probably does help. Well, that may well, that may well, but you know, both as you and I say, you both believe Lauren, it's not about that. It's about the relationship with ourselves really. Yeah, isn't it? yeah. And I've never had a relationship with myself before. That's 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 the difficult thing. I well, I've, I'm kind of been forced to have one the last couple of years because Vicky's cancer kind of preoccupied us for quite a long time. Mm. I'm sort of I'm kind of coming round to the opinion that I might not be such a bad bloke to have a relationship <laughs> with after all. The main thing as well, I think, too, is be kind to yourself. Yeah. Be kind to yourself. You know, don't beat yourself. Yeah no matter what's going on and how bad you're feeling, just be kind to yourself. I'm a great believer in bubble baths. <laughs> well, look, it's been lovely to talk to both of you. And um, just to mention that Ian's book, The Breath of Sadness on Love, Grief and Cricket is available on this website on Floodlit Dreams website. And Bob Willis, a cricketer and a gentleman is available, available from Hodder and Staunton. And um, Lauren, what's your um, Twitter hashtag for your Bob fund? Oh, uh, well, it's actually at the moment at Bob Willis Legacy, but that will change. Um, we've got a social media expert coming in and he's going to take over it. So it'll probably be 
at Bob Willis Fund, but I'm, I'm not actually sure of that quite yet because we're sort of launching in mid-April. And we'll look out for it <laughs> and be tweeting about it when Thank it's there. You, yes. I'll, I'll be asking you to retweet. <laughs> Ian and Lauren, thanks very much. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you.